Don't call it a comeback. We've been in your ears. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club that's still reading these books. The sword's ours. We're Gryffindors, and it was Godric Gryffindors. And before it was Gryffindors, whose was it? No one's, said Ron. It was made for him, wasn't it? Visiting arrogance again. That sword was Ragnuk the First's, taken from him by Godric Gryffindor. It is a lost treasure, a masterpiece of goblin work. It belongs with the goblins. The sword is the price of my hire. Take it or leave it. I'm Heather Pricewright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. We are still reading this book. We just passed our four-year anniversary. Of being a podcast? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. In October 1st was yeah. our first ever episode. October 1st, 2016. And then we slipped a time disc. What do you say? Four more years? Uh, kill me. <laughs> do not say things like that. <laughs> oh, by the way, if you were on the fence about whether this podcast was too liberal shill for you, oh boy, are you going to hate the rest of this book. Stop listening now because 2020 has radicalized us. <laughs> So welcome back. We are indeed recording our first episode in the bad, bad times. We were already recording in the bad times and then J.K. Rowling went off the rails and now we're in the bad, bad times. But you know, there's a light at the end of some of our tunnels. She kind of been off the rails. Okay, well she, Like hanging from the rails, like. She revealed the extent to which she had already driven off she's a full Gringotts roller coaster, but with no rails. Just a fucking mine cart. Like I can't get out of this metaphor. Yeah, lying <laughs> everywhere with no rails. Anyway, but here we are reading Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, which is blessedly book seven in this morass of a series that we continue to try to love. despite it all this week we are reading the chapter called shell cottage and you are going to hear spoilers and cursing it's still going to be mostly fun we think you will also hear some adult themes this week's adult themes are long walks on the beach house guests revisionist history possession is nine tenths of the law and oh boy gender reveals so Glad to be with you again. And Alex, what happened this week? Man, can I? When's the last time I did one of these? Like, I don't know. I'm actually really worried about this. Was Let's it see June? how it goes. Yeah. It, uh, no, God, it was probably May. May. Wow. I think probably the last time we recorded in Phoenix, we'd only been there for like six weeks. But we're back in New York City now. It's true. Being very cozy. Drinking, drinking cider. cider. Wearing sweaters. Um, it's fucking pumpkin spice season up in here, except we don't really drink pumpkin spice drinks. I'm just stalling because I'm really nervous about doing a summary. But okay, here we go. In this week's chapters, Harry's at a cottage named after shells. <laughs> it's called Shell Cottage. Why is it called Shell Cottage again? There's shells everywhere. Alex, on the, it's beach, at the beach. Or is it are there like shells inside like the decor? Is we, it like a beach is it like beach vacation house where there's like wine shells glasses everything that and, like, say like it's beach o'clock beaches? Yeah. <laughs> Just reminders everywhere that you're at the beach. If Don't worry, if there isn't, it's like, beach time. As if there's not a gigantic fucking ocean right outside. Because we are 
deeply basic people. We recently decided we wanted to buy some new drinking glasses and thought, what if they were mason jars? This is only partly true, but I was Googling mason jar drinking glasses. And there were a bunch of full sets of like 12 to 18 mason jar drinking glasses that had either beach or lake sayings. And they were different on each one. And it was like, it's lake o'clock. Or like, or fuck like, off, chill out. Lake. Like, it's lake day. Sorry, I'm thinking about the lake. Like, <laughs> so, it was truly deranged. This jar is guess, filled with lake water. Ugh, uh, gillyweed. We anyway, actually banned mason jars from our wedding. Well, we didn't ban them. We just didn't use them. No mason jars were allowed. We're natural twine. Or burlap. We're burlap. But That's anyway, true. now we're thinking about mason jars for the house. I don't know. Anyway, no mason jars at Shell Cottage, which, fun fact, it's actually not when Bill bought the place. He's like, he said, this is a shell of a cottage. I don't get it. Hell of a cot. Nope. I'm taking that joke out. I thought out. you were going to say something about shelling out for it, which is a better joke. That is a better joke. He shelled out for Shell Cottage. So anyway, Harry's at Shell Cottage. God, there this is shells. just already a steaming <laughs> wreckage of a summary. He's spending time by the seashore thinking about his decision not to race Voldemort for the Elder Wand and instead go after the Horcruxes, not the Deathly Hallows, even though the book is called Harry Potter and the uh, Deathly Hallows. So spoiler alert, he is going to find them eventually. Well, in fact, he already has a bunch of them. Yeah. All but the main penis. He's one. got two thirds of the Hallows. He just doesn't well have- Well unbeknownst to him. The big, big, powerful dick. <laughs> the dick hollow. <laughs> Hallow. Hallow. Harry Potter and the Hallow penis. As she spits cider out of her mouth. How do we make this thing? I don't know. I don't know how this goes. Ron. Sucks. Ron. Ron Ron asks. Everyone's just kind of post-gaming the decision or pre-gaming the decision. I don't know. They're gaming. They're gaming out. They're gaming out this Horcrux strategy. At one point, Ron asks how they know if Dumbledore is really dead. Hermione says, like, don't be ridiculous, Ron, or something like that. Griphook, the goblin says, we all remember Griphook's the goblin, right? Um, (laughs) Griphook says he's decided to help the trio break into Gringotts, even though the other goblins will will consider it base treachery. But, he says, there's a price. Gold, Harry asks. Griphook says, I've got gold. My price is the, this is a direct quote from the book, my price is the ba-ba-ba motherfucking sword of Godric Gryffindor. Harry says, I would do anything for Horcruxes, but I won't do that. Harry says, you can have anything else from you want from the vault. Griphook says, I'm not a fucking thief, dude. The trio says, the sword is ours. We're Gryffindors. It's kind of in the name, sort of Gryffindor. Uh, we have the right to it. Griphook says, ah ha ha, wizarding. Oh, he doesn't say ah ha ha, he's not the count. Uh, <laughs> uh, one, uh, one uh, sword uh, of Gryffindor. Ah ah ah. He says, wizarding arrogance again. That sword was Ragnux the first. It was taken from him by Godric Gryffindor. It's a lost treasure. It's a goblin masterpiece. And the sword belongs with the goblins. That's my price. Take it or leave it. Deal or no deal. Wow, that was a dated reference. I'm dated references are all I got. I turned <laughs> I turned 35 recently. Uh disaster. My cultural competency switches off at frankly around like 1995. 
I mean, but even then, like, you're not even great on, like, 90s culture. Like, you don't know shit about Mariah Carey. I know that she doesn't want a lot for Christmas. Harry says, Okay, Griphook, we're gonna need a minute. The trio go huddle. They debate whether or not Griphook's telling the truth. Hermione says, Well, you know, wizarding history, it often uh, kind of elides some important details about the relationship with the goblin, so... Who knows if this is true or not? Ron's like, this is goblin revisionist history. We're lucky he didn't ask for one of our penises. I mean, wands. <laughs> Both sides did bad stuff. Argle bargle, like fucking emails, whatever. Arguing about whose race is worse isn't going to help our cause or convince him, Hermione says. Ron suggests they could promise Griphook the sword and then ghost on him. Metaphorically, the plan doesn't involve ghosts. <laughs> there are ghosts. Uh in this book. Thank you for that reminder. That's just... Summaries are so hard. It's not really a summary at this point. Remember when Harry is like, I promise you, Dumbledore is not a ghost. And it's like sort of a chilling moment. Speaking of uh, ghosts. Anyway, go on. Hermione says that's despicable. Maybe they could offer him something like just as valuable, but they don't have any other like fucking priceless artifacts lying around. Although I don't see why they couldn't like get one. They could be like, Shroud of Turin, do you want that grip hook? Like they could just fucking magic it out of a museum, right? I don't know. Can you Osseo Shroud of Turin? Osseo Shroud. I mean, obviously grip hook only is only interested in the sword. Goblin made artifact. He's all about, you know, repatriation, uh, which we will get to. Harry finds the idea that Gryffindor, that Godric Gryffindor might have stolen the sword, um, extremely unpleasant, because he'd always been proud to be a Gryffindor, and it's supposed to be, you know, being like a fucking douchebag, a Slytherin's thing, not Godric Gryffindor's. We have it on pretty good authority that Godric Gryffindor, also a douchebag. <laughs> they could just ask the Sorting Hat at some point, right? Be like, hey, level with us. But they don't have the hat right what now. What did you see? What if they promised Griphook the sorting hat instead? He would be you, like, you this can't... thing is horrible. <laughs> you can't have the sword, but... Uh, you can have this hat like... that writes poems. Would you like the hat? The hat produced the sword. So that must have something to do with like where, it, where and to whom it belongs. Maybe. Except no. Hats also produce bunnies, and that doesn't mean that those bunnies are yours. Yeah. Those bunnies belong to Mother Earth. Anyway... Uh, what are we doing? Eventually, Harry says, Griphook can have it. After we've used it on the Horcruxes, I'll make sure he gets it. I'll keep my word. It's not lying, technically. Uh, so they shake on it with Griphook. Then they get down to planning their epic heist, which is going to be hard because the Lestrange's vault is one of the oldest, deepest, and best protected in... Gringotts. It's not a fucking combination lock. Um, you know, life goes on at Shell Cottage. Griphook eats alone in his room most nights until Fleur gets mad about having to send him trays and then Bill puts a stop to it and Griphook has to, like, eat with everybody else. So, you know, roommates. It's awkward. At some point, Mr. Ollivander decamps for Aunt Muriel who is, like, running the other safe house which, that's pretty badass, because what? She's like a hundred. No, she's more than that. I don't remember Aunt Muriel's age. We discussed this, didn't we? Didn't we like work out the math of this? I think we did the math, math this? and she's extraordinarily anyway. old to yeah. be running a boarding house. <laughs> Fleur gives Ollivander Aunt Muriel's tiara to return. Griphook is like kind of like hanging at the edges of like this farewell scene and says, mm, "Moonstones and diamond. I think that was made by goblins, and paid for by wizards." Says Bill Weasley quietly, and then they like glare at each other so 
What could that be all about? Uh, Remus Lupin comes to visit at some point, joyously announcing that he and Tonks have had a baby boy, and they're going to name him Ted after Nymphadora's father, Ted Tonks. And also the baby's hair changes color, too. Is Ted dead at this point? Ted died, right? Did he? Ted's... I mean, Ted definitely dies. I just don't remember if we find that out now oh, or later. Because he was like... He was with Bill. He was on no, the no, no. Dean. He was on the run with Dean, Dean and, and uh, one of the and Griphook. Yeah, and he's dead, and Dean and Griphook are in the house. Oh, how could I not remember this? R.I.P. Ted Tonks Senior. Welcome to the world, Ted Tonks baby. Dead Tonks. Oh God. That's gonna be really embarrassing if we're wrong, and like Ted somehow like. No, Ted's definitely dead. Ted's I just for sure don't dead. remember if we know that All now right. or if we find that out later on. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We're Harry Potter experts. <laughs> we haven't read this book in like four months <laughs> uh, the last time i picked it up was like august also remus asks harry to be ted's godfather so that's cool Kinda. god only knows what god means in the wizarding world but Rem- we can't even get into that remus was also like you know what harry needs right now more responsibility yep pressure <laughs> let's put Lay it on <laughs> Bill pulls Harry aside and asks him if he's planning something with Griphook, and he asks him what, if anything, they promised Griphook in exchange for his help. Harry's like, "Mm, definitely not the priceless sword of Gryffindor. He says, look, I work for Gringotts. I've got, like, goblin friends as far as, like, wizards can have goblin friends. They don't think about money and property and ownership the same way we do so you need to be very careful about what you promise griphook because they think that wizards can't be trusted in matters of gold and treasure and that they have no respect for goblin ownership so yeah basically the upshot is to goblins the true owner of something is the maker not the purchaser so even if a wizard buys something they consider it like more like rented and at death the thing tiara sword etc should revert to goblin ownership so basically he's like make sure you know what you're doing it would quote be less dangerous to break into gringotts than to renege on a promise to a goblin unquote and harry is doing that like oh like pull on on his collar also harry's like a little drunk because they've been like toasting i think more than a little i think they're all wasted (laughs) they've been drinking they've drunk they've had like goblet after goblet of wine i mean no one should be drunk ever in this book don't get drunk. You need your wits about it's you. True. The last time didn't we learn anything from the, the wedding? Wed- the last time everyone was hammered, the Death Eaters. I wonder attacked. if there's a spell. You know what would rule is if there was like a sobering charm. Oh man. Or like or yeah, a like, potion. Yeah. Yeah, like a sobering potion. Damn. Where you can immediately sober up and not have a hangover. Yeah, that'd be amazing. I bet there is that. Clearly, Fred and George are working on this. If wizards know how to do anything, it's drink. Seriously. So anyway, Harry then thinks to himself, Riley, with like an internal smirk, that it's funny how he's already turning out to be just as reckless a godfather to Teddy Lupin as Sirius Black had been to him. And that's what happens in this week's chapter. Whew. So. All right, we did it. We're back in the saddle, I think. So Harry's growing as a character and as a man. That's nice. That's a nice kind of first thing to encounter in this chapter. There's a nice line where he says, 
he's talking about how he made the conscious decision to kind of follow the Horcrux angle and not get sidetracked by the Hallows. And he basically says, I think this is the first time I ever decided not to act on an impulse. (laughs) And you're like, oh boy, look, this is a young man showing restraint and character and, you know, personal growth. The enormity of his decision not to race Voldemort to the wand still scared Harry. He could not remember ever before choosing not to act. He was full of doubts. Doubts that Ron could not help voicing whenever they were together. What if Dumbledore wanted us to work out the symbol in time to get the wand? What if working out what the symbol meant made you worthy to get the Hallows? Harry, if that really is the Elder Wand, how the hell are we supposed to finish off you-know-who? Harry had no answers. There were moments when he wondered whether it had been outright madness not to try to prevent Voldemort breaking open the tomb. He could not even explain satisfactorily why he had decided against it. Every time he tried to reconstruct the internal arguments that had led to his decision, they sounded feebler to him. The odd thing was that Hermione's support made him feel just as confused as Ron's doubts. He actually didn't pick up on that line at first, but you're right. This is the first time he's not just fucking Leroy Jenkinsing it or whatever. Like running fully yeah. headlong into some nonsense. It's actual strategy. I mean, he's yes, really he's learning. Being, he's being strategic for once. He's sort of learning. You're watching him kind of learn how to be like a general. It's funny when he's like, I feel a little worse about the decision because Hermione agrees with me, <laughs> which is really mean because also Hermione's reason for agreeing is I think grave robbing is a little bit beyond what we want to get ourselves involved in, which, yeah, full marks. I agree. Don't rob your beloved teacher and mentor's grave, sir. I just think that's probably not the direction you want your life to be headed. Is it more grave robbing or grave borrowing? You open a coffin and you take something out of a corpse's hand. That's true. You can't just be like, hey, I'll bring this back. Yeah. You borrowing implies some kind of consent or mutual agreement and Harry's pretty good at kind of talking himself into thinking he knows what Dumbledore would want but you can't actually get Dumbledore's approval to again steal from his literal fucking tomb. So you know Voldemort lols at Dumbledore for being dead in Which the recent chapter. Which is so funny. Yeah uh, but It's the wizarding world, right? Actions like this tend to carry some kind of import. So it seems like robbing a grave actually probably would like put you on the wrong side of some kind of magical ledger, right? Yeah, but doesn't it seem like the kind of thing that Voldemort thinks will build his strength? Because it's the same kind of thing where the worse shit he does, the stronger his sort of like Horcrux vibes get. Mm. So I actually think probably grave robbing his like greatest enemy is like a check mark in the right category as far as he's concerned well because if you have to kill in order to make the horcruxes then i think just doing fucked up stuff makes him stronger in his mind yeah that's just kind of what villains do and then ron's out here saying guys how do we know dumbledore is really dead oh my god ron's conspiracy theory bullshit is just like in full flame i kind of can't blame ron here in some ways because More improbable shit has happened. His rat was a living man. (laughs) 
His beloved rat was a man. A bad man. A bad man. Not a good man. That he snuggled at night, every Ew, night ugh. with. Every time I think about that, it makes me. Was first of all, man. don't sleep with rats. Yeah. <laughs> just no, like, that's fine. I don't if know. If you have a pet rat, people love rats. Some rats. I just, I don't think pets should be in the bed. <laughs> Maybe I'm just traumatized by the amount of space that my parents' dog takes up in their human bed. I just, I think pets, pets should sleep in their beds. Well, anyway. They're the Weasleys. They can't afford a rat bed. It's, I don't know. It's called like a little hat he sleeps in. <laughs> a pocket in the drawer. Uh, and then, you know, they're fourth year teacher turned out to be somebody turned out to be like a serial killer or whatever yeah Uh, like again you are naming all of the plot points that are the most irritating so fair enough wild shit happens he's like we traveled through time he's also like travel through actually what ron should say is can't we travel through time and like undo all of this like kill baby voldemort or whatever that's what ron should say no like pull a full-on avengers endgame here and like get all the horcruxes is that what in happens in Endgame? Yeah, they travel back in time and get all okay, the... Okay, well, spoiler. Work. Oh, sorry. <laughs> People get really mad about that stuff. Avengers Infinity, Avengers Endgame spoiler, they go get the Horcruxes slash Infinity Stones and from the past. Them. The and magical then... Goo Gaws. Uh, Who is a Goo Gaw? What's that? Is that a thing? Goo Gaws the... are just like widgets or like thingamabobs. Goo Gaws just a... Right? I've never heard that word. I think I read it in... A, who's the New York Times movie critic? Uh, he called them magical goo gaws. So I assume... Who is that? The guy that wrote... A.O. A.O. Scott. A.O. Scott. Anyway, the fucking McGuff, the MacGuffins. No, it's different. Okay, we're getting really in the weeds here. The quest items. Well, also, I guess, to be fair, Ron could be like, guys, I've read Lord of the Rings. The wizard is definitely not dead. The big main wizard guy. Listen. There is precedent for this. I made a muggle friend one time as a kid. I read this Tolkien shit. Wizard, not dead. He's the main guy. He comes back. He's Dumbledore the White now. It would be weird if anyone in these books had read The Lord of the Rings. Do you think The Lord of the Rings exists in the muggle Harry Potter universe? Like, do they live in a universe where we're... No, it can't. Because otherwise Harry you could, would be like... Harry could be like, guys, the wizard's alive. I've read this book. Or he'd be like, man, it sure is fucking coincidental that the snivelly like, henchman's name is Wormtongue in The Lord of the Rings and Wormtail in Harry Potter. How Don't strange. Don't trust that guy. How strange that Gollum and Creature have such similar arcs in the, <laughs> in the hero's journey. I mean, Creature... Gets a better arc than Gollum. All Fair right? enough. Ends up in a better spot. You I know? guess they're just he like gets to keep his staff position. Actually, I guess he's still a lifelong. Weirdos. I guess he's still like enslaved at the end of this book. Yeah. So maybe it doesn't turn out well for creature. I know, but, but Gollum like jumps in the volcano, doesn't he? he what fall- happens to I think Gollum? He gets he falls into. It's the volcano. not a volcano. There's a struggle. It? Yeah, it's a volcano. Alex, I know very little about what happens in Lord of the Rings. I'm remembering. We should make a viral YouTube video of you explaining it. So, Ron's the worst. I returned to this book fully prepared to kind of forgive and embrace the characters. No, I didn't. I'm, they're all trash. Harry's okay. Hermione is a pretty flawed ally. Harry's Ron, actually one of the best. Harry is one of the best. But, you know, he never like fully, like Harry could be a revolutionary. And instead he's a 
cop. So Harry's fine. Hermione, flawed allyship. Ron is garbage pale kid, fully. <laughs> Was the sword stolen by Gryffindor? I don't know, she said hopelessly. Wizarding history often skates over what the wizards have done to other magical races, but there's no account that I know of that says Gryffindor stole the sword. It'll be one of those goblin stories, said Ron, about how the wizards are always trying to get one over on them. I suppose we should think ourselves lucky he hasn't asked for one of our wands. Goblins have got good reason to dislike wizards, Ron, said Hermione. They've been treated brutally in the past. Goblins aren't exactly fluffy little bunnies, though, are they? said Ron. They've killed plenty of us. They've fought dirty, too. But arguing with Griphook about whose race is most underhanded and violent isn't going to make him more likely to help us, is it? Ron is out here making every just, like, outrageously ill-conceived and, like, cliched and boring and stupid argument about how goblins were, like, also bad. I mean, it's just, you know... It's like when people, when you talk about, well, so we're recording this on Indigenous Peoples Day. And what Ron made me think of is, you know, when you talk about the fucking genocide of most of the Indigenous people in the Americas by Europeans. And people are like, well, they like scalped people or whatever. Like, oh, two cultures, equally brutal. One just like sort of happened to like have manifest destiny on their side. So it all turned out fine. Like, yeah. Ron is like, well, yeah, they, like, also, like, stabbed people. And it's like, yeah, but one side wiped the other out. I guess we're supposed to read goblins as a colonized people. Yeah, it's it interesting. Feel, it has those vibes. There are definitely, I mean, we talked the last episode we made uh, 18 years ago about the sort of, like, Semitic um, overtones. They're not subtle. They're, they're so unsubtle that the writers of fucking SNL called it out. So now like we last know. last week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pete Davidson was like, Jews run the banks. Oh, wait, it's goblins. And I was like, okay, so we're not actually very original thinkers at all. We already knew that. Everybody knows that the goblins are very, very, very clearly anti-Semitic tropes. But yeah, they also read as colonized people to me. And a lot of Ron's... Goblin arguments remind me of like, did you ever see that Mel Gibson movie, Apocalypto? No. Okay, well, first of all, super don't. I don't, I think I saw it with like a bad boyfriend. But the whole, I mean, the whole argument is like, we actually, like, you know, white saviors did the world a favor by wiping out these like incredibly violent, bloodthirsty, savage, to use the actual word, tribes. And Ron is kind of like, I don't know, playing into all of those tropes with goblins. He's just bigoted and small-minded and thoughtless, and his first instinct is to fuck people over. Always. He wants to lie and steal. And uh, I think it's almost, I don't know if it's like, it's almost more sinister than that. It's less he wants to actively lie and steal, and it's more he's willing to do that if it protects his own... Status. Like, status, comfort, and I'm talking about, like, not even just, like, material comfort... He lashes out when his, like, psychological comfort is threatened. He's one of those people that he cannot, like, abide conversations about the possibility that, like, his side wasn't always the good side. Which is just very, I mean, he's a a young person, so I guess there's, like, some space for this, but it's so infantile. 
I don't know what this suggests exactly about what Rowling herself thinks because she's putting these words in Ron's mouth. She's putting the words in the mouth of a character that we are That's, meant to understand as a good guy. But not always right or that bright. Or he kind of exists to like make I don't know. propositions that are then swiftly batted down by. But he's also sometimes positioned as the voice of reason or like the real talk guy. Yeah, I don't think it's that. I think she positions him as the character who I actually think probably Ron is kind of a mouthpiece for her worldview in that he's often the character who kind of bats away political correctness like starry-eyed idealism not even idealism but is the character who's like now that we've dispensed with the need to like say the like good thing the like right good person like kind of brown nosy thing let's say the real thing because I think Hermione is often written as being and again like Hermione is very imperfect in this way too but Hermione is the character that is most often like hey actually Wizard and Goblin history is pretty complicated. Wizards are definitely not always or even usually like on the side of right. Also, your textbooks lied to you. And I feel like often she's portrayed as kind of a goody-goody or very invested in, I don't know, there's something about Hermione is like PC culture to me, which now I understand J.K. Rowling to really despise. I think J.K. Rowling likes Ron more than she likes Hermione. Interesting. Like, there is more warmth. He is I more mean, that flawed. Would, that would track with her portrayal of many, many female in characters yeah. in these books. No. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's the thing that's been, and you know, we're going to have to check ourselves because the thing that's really hard about coming back to this after the sort of spring, summer, fall year, you know, trash that we've had as a fandom, as a culture, as a world, is... um. It's just I, I cannot but hold her in ill esteem in all of the choices that she's made. It's, it's going to be really hard for me to get back to a place where I can trust any of her authorial decisions as not sort of gross. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that, you know, we're just going to have to monitor because I don't, I don't trust this authorial voice anymore. Right. And even as much as I am actually really enjoyed this chapter and thought I laughed out loud, I like read a couple of parts to you. I thought it was really fun. This book is so fun. But reading it in sort of this new light, it's just like I don't, I don't trust this person to be sort of, I don't know, right about anything. And that's an extreme reaction. And so I know that that's an extreme reaction. Right. But I think that's why it's going to be, that's why the, the return is more challenging than I guess we expected. Yeah. That's really well put. And it's too bad because, you know, there's a mind there. She's obviously, no one can be wrong about, well, I guess you could try. But, like, very few people are wrong about everything. And the yeah. portrayal of... There's more than a mind there. There's one yeah. of the great literary minds of the 21st century there. Like, we, we have to give her credit for having created something, like, awesome in almost every way. Yeah. Um, compelling and beloved. We cannot take that away from her. Right. So, I don't know. In so many of these, like, world-building things, she gets up to, like, she gets, like, 75 to 80% of the way to making, like, a really trenchant point. So she makes some interesting observations in this chapter. Maybe 75 to 80% is wrong, because, like, I want her to, like, get 100% to, like, where my opinion is, but I don't know. So maybe I'm, like, judging it too hard. But... She makes some interesting observations about 
ways cultures can like fundamentally misunderstand each other, which are like, I don't know, fairly sophisticated, I would say, for a book for kids. You don't understand, Harry. Nobody could understand unless they have lived with goblins. To a goblin, the rightful and true master of any object is the maker, not the purchaser. All goblin-made objects are, in goblin eyes, rightfully theirs. But if it was bought, then they would consider it rented by the one who had paid the money. They have, however, great difficulty with the idea of goblin-made objects passing from wizard to wizard. You saw Griphook's face when the tiara passed under his eyes. He disapproves. I believe he thinks, as do the fiercest of his kind, that it ought to have been returned to the goblins once the original purchaser died. They consider our habit of keeping goblin-made objects, passing them from wizard to wizard without further payment, little more than theft. One of the main sources of friction between goblins and humans are notions of property ownership, and the wizards have, I guess what you'd call, a capitalist society, and goblins have this, like, totally, even though weirdly, go actually, this is starting to break down for me a bit, because also goblins run the banks, so. Well, that's because her cultural observations kind of aren't that trenchant, because often she doesn't pay enough attention to the magical creatures world building to realize that a lot of their ideologies are like kind of diametrically opposed <laughs> so yeah the, the goblin ideology kind of breaks down upon scrutiny but let's just take this particular right. piece of their ideology because there are interesting things to talk yeah. about here so goblins have this like different have this totally different concept of property ownership which of course it's interesting to be discussing this on indigenous people's day because ideas around property ownership are like a major flashpoint in early encounters between Europeans and Native Americans. Uh, and I'm thinking about this recently because I'm reading this book called American Colonies, which is the first, which is like part of the Oxford History of the U.S., like part one. So when the French fur traders are setting up shop in North America, they are striking deals with all these tribes and nations around the Great Lakes. And they're working in like a mercantilist, like early capitalist framework. And so they are like giving nations different deals based on like the distance from ports and supply and demand. Well, well, meanwhile, uh, it's filtering out through the different nations doing business with the French that they're getting different prices and in like the minds of political leaders in these nations they're thinking like well you're not respecting me as much as my neighbors so this causes like major conflicts with the french so uh, that's kind of mirrored here with the goblins i would say well yeah i mean it is interesting to to know that notions of what can and can't be owned by whom and for what length of time are often, yeah, kind of the major cultural signifiers and separators that, that cause conflict. I mean, first of all, like, ownership is a source of conflict because people fight for property. Right. So I think there's, like, sort of inherently those would be sources of conflict because what you're fighting over is something that a person can have or not have. But, I mean, it is, again, what you're saying is so, it, it is so true that J.K. Rowling, like, she knows a lot of shit. 
Right. You know? There's no way that J.K. Rowling hasn't done a fair amount of, like, sociological and anthropological research and has sort of at least started to try and create a cultural flashpoint between goblins and wizards that has real historical kind of and veracity. Yeah, and to me, I what I really like about this chapter, and especially Ron's kind of the debate that the trio have and Ron's interjections, is it shows how difficult it is to have nuanced conversations about these historic conflicts and exchanges that still resonate today. Because another thing I was thinking about while I was reading this chapter is there's the famous myth, right, that the Dutch bought Manhattan from the Lenape people for 24 bucks, or they calculated like the goods that were like exchanged. But I mean, the meaning of that transaction was totally different to both parties because the Lenape had like a con, it was more like renting the area or like inviting the Dutch in as because they didn't have these like really fixed notions of like, okay, well, the fence is here. So that's my land. That's your land. It was more like, fluid but anyway ron today would be like well the europeans like bought it you know so it was theirs after that and even at the time like dutch and then later english colonists like really zealously like prosecuted like dragged like native people into like courts over like boundary infringements that they didn't really understand but they were like well yeah here's the deed uh well and even saying they didn't really understand paints a picture of a sophisticated and an unsophisticated culture. Okay, not didn't understand. Yeah. But I mean that's the thing that we do. That's you're the right. thing no, that right. that's the thing that colonizers do is then replace the reality of two drastically different value systems with a sophisticated and unsophisticated or a good and a bad or a cultivated and a savage system. And that's one of the things that Ron is doing is is basically like colonialism does worse things than this but one of the things that colonizers do is assign sort of like moral or ethical value or even sort of intellectual value to belief systems that obviously like in a way that benefits them so there's no reason that the goblins way of viewing ownership is worse or dumber or less sophisticated it's literally just drastically different. Right. And what Ron is also doing is flattening power dynamics. Right. And pretending they don't exist. And that's the fucked up thing. So like at first the French or the Dutch, like we have to remember colonization is not necessarily like inevitable. Nobody at the time knew what was going to play out over the next 200 years. But like slowly the power imbalances became like very clear and were used to cement imperial advantage basically by the Europeans so I think we don't get this explicitly from rolling but obviously the goblins lost these goblin wars right because the goblins it's not the goblin world of Harry Potter right yeah and now there's like the goblin liaison office which to me imply like they're like registered they're put under like guardianship it is tribal it's interesting to well it's also interesting because we know that in J.K. Rowling's A thing we do know from her other writings, actually, is J.K. Rowling's understanding of of the Americas and specifically indigenous culture in the Americas is incredibly elementary and and very, very pathetic, actually. Because the way she wrote 
North American wizardry drew on only the most essentialist and sort of like outrageous and 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 small tropes about native people. So this is interesting because I actually don't think that this is what she's gesturing at on purpose. I still think there's this this hues more closely to the experience of European Jews who also had to register at various points in history and sort of liaise with like the kind of dominant Christian governments. But it is interesting that she is like echoing something even though she clearly doesn't know very much about it. Like we know J.K. Rowling does not know very much tribal history. Well, I mean, we're also skirting over, you know, the colonization of Africa, colonization yes. of India, like the British don't no, 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 colonize the Br- no, 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 everywhere. No, no, I know the British yeah. don't colonize everywhere. But it's just interesting because like my particular like cultural knowledge. Right. That's I, the lens we look at it. I don't know the most about indigenous uh, the indigenous americas but i certainly know more about that sort of experience of colonialism and genocide than like most others yeah just given my upbringing and sort of historical vantage but yeah obviously like jk rowling knows about colonies although she's scottish which is that's a whole other other kettle of fish so yeah and just one last point about the the flattening of the power dynamics it's not that goblins, and actually Hermione, she makes a pretty good point here. She says, this is like not relevant to the debate. We're not going to win in, like, it's pointless arguing who's better, who's worse. Like, these are both societies. Goblins and wizards are both capable of violence and, like, good and bad deeds, just like European colonizers and native nations had both had like good and bad people were both capable of violence both like engaged in wars one side however had the ability to inflict far more pain pain and violence and chose to do so yeah and yeah through through like a because of like a very complicated like sequence of historical events technology epidemiology all conspired to like yeah provide more opportunity for like domination i would be remiss if i didn't mention so we've been talking about obviously you've been reading a lot about early colonial america i we both know less about the british sort of empire than the american empire which we pretend is not an empire which is very interesting well the u.s starts as the british empire but you know what i mean yeah i know what you mean But we did have a listener write in, I mean, it honestly could have been 18 years ago, as far as I'm concerned, but a while (laughs) ago, um, who's an art historian, who brought up a different kind of analog that I thought was really interesting and that I learned a lot about today, which is the story of the Elgin marbles, which you didn't know about this either. But basically, this was the marble friezes and statuary at the Parthenon in ancient Athens that was, I guess, quote-unquote, bought by a British earl from the Ottoman Empire in, like, 1801 and brought back to Britain. And then the, or not even bought, but he had, like, a promissory note or some shit. And he took this, like, totally priceless ancient set of artifacts back to Britain with him. Then the British Museum bought it from him and it's sort of been in the museum ever since. And when the modern Greek state was established, Greece was like, you guys like for sure looted those. Like you don't own those. Those are Greek. 
and now sort of one of the great kind of like disputes over ancient art and artifacts in the world is about who owns the Elgin marbles. It seems to be public opinion sways pretty hard toward Greece owning them, which like is where I land, having done some research, because this fucking Earl was like, oh yeah, no, the Turks, uh, they wrote me a note that I own them. And all these like scholars of the Ottoman Empire are like, actually, this empire took hella notes. Like, we have all their papers, and this isn't there, and this is a kind of a big one. Because these are some of the great artifacts of, of like, the sort of... Antiquity. Of the West, yeah. period. So I did think that that was also an interesting... Like, the, the idea of how you own... Because this is different from land. Because we had been having a conversation specifically about property ownership when it came to land, which obviously, yeah. like, these aren't land. Like, these are artifacts. This is art. And this is what... Grip hook is demanding. Right. Is, yeah, repatriation like of, 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 of cultural, of cultural artifacts. artifacts. Like he says they're, they're great goblin treasures. And so one of the things that was really interesting as I was doing this research is it seems like, and, you know, UK listeners, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like this is something that people, like, know about over there. I mean, I, apparently a lot of Americans do, too. This is an American listener. It's like a topic of public discussion. But this is something that they do, like, polling about, like, public opinion polling. Yeah. So this is something that, like, J.K. Rowling has an opinion about, probably. As a person in the UK, as a person who's probably been asked by, like, some, I don't know, like, YouGov poll. Seriously, this is something that they, like, yeah. call people and just say, like, do you think we should return the Elgin marbles to Greece? And, like, 40% of Britons say yes. So this made me really curious whether J.K. Rowling thinks that. Because what do you think J.K. Rowling thinks here? Like, does do the goblins own the swords and the tiaras and shit? Oh, man. I, can't, I mean, I guess yeah. it doesn't really matter what she believes, but... You know, it's another one of those instances where, like you said, she gets really close to kind of important trenchant points. But the status quo always wins the day with her. She's really like the status conservative, co- like lower C conservative. Right. She believes that the status quo should usually carry. Right. Like the status quo with like adjustments to like make it a little more tolerable, like, like a little palatable. nicer. Yeah. Yeah. Like she's very, she's very patriarchal. So if I had to guess, I like did a quick Google and I couldn't find her on record at this. She's very patriarchal. So I would guess that she falls in the camp of, well, we paid is, for them. Is, no, I think my guess would be she falls into the camp of, is the Greek government's like plan to like preserve them? Oh or, yeah, like, the British government or the the British Museum's whole thing was like, well, Greece doesn't have a good enough museum for these to go in. Yeah, so which my, is so dumb. My guess, my guess would it would be not patriarchal, patronizing, also patriarchal. But she is patriarchal. Yeah, and she's patronizing. also patronizing. Yeah, my guess is she would say. Well, once Greece has proven to us that they're kind of worthy of, like... Their own shit. Yeah, then we can... But, I mean, you know, the wizards sort of have that imperialist view that they kind of speak for the wizarding world. Like, they have the Ministry of Magic. They're not Mm -hmm. all magic. Like, they don't speak for all of magic. There are, like, lots of magical creatures in the same way that, you know, Britain and the United States have kind of positioned themselves as like over the last like however many decades 
until very recently as like the defenders of like the enlightenment and like science. Yeah, and... as like speaking for all nations who want to sort right. of like live in the truth and the light. Right. So like of course we would have like the best thing in our museum where the like the, yeah. like an artifact from the seat of democracy and like our museum where the home of like well, parliaments I mean, or God, whatever. There's you like know? there's a line on 30 Rock where Jack Donaghy basically like makes fun of the Greeks as having like invented democracy and then like done nothing since. <laughs> so but That's it not is funny. Yeah. no but it is it's this very patronizing view yeah. of like okay well like way back in the day I guess they made these marbles but like now like we're like in charge so these go here right? Anyway, we've kind of babbled about this, but I did want to make sure to talk about that because I thought, first of all, it was me learning a really fascinating historical debate from a listener, and it did feel sort of equally relevant. The one last thing I will say about goblins is that I really like that they're just like, fuck inherited wealth. (laughs) Because if we've learned anything from like, I don't know, if I personally have learned anything from sort of reading about wealth disparities and reparations, it's that the existence of heritable wealth which is very much a colonizer ideology and mentality is a lot of the reasons that these disparities exist i really like the idea of major artifacts of cultural production like reverting to the community after after like owner yeah after one owner why should somebody be able to pat like say okay if like the mona lisa were privately owned this is that's a very western example but like all these things that are privately owned it's like you shouldn't be able to give that to, like, your dumb kid. Like, that shouldn't belong to, like, or the I, people. I think more in the sense that all production, in a sense, is communal. I'm also reading, I've been reading, like, two or three books, like, forever, because I've not been able to get through a book in the pandemic. But I'm also reading How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, and she has this great passage about how just, like, nobody has, like, their own ideas. You're just right. this, like... It's all communal. Everything has been, you've been, like... We're just communists now. (laughs) (laughs) Everything, you know, people obviously have ideas. Uh, So, like, that's an extreme thing to say. But, you know, you are the result of, like, every conversation you've had and, like, environment you've been in. So I like the idea that, yeah, the sword would revert to, like, just goblins in general. So, like, the same way that, like, I don't know, fucking Mickey Mouse. You can, like, track the development of, like, trademark law in the U.S. by, like, whenever Mickey Mouse is, like patent or whatever trademark is like going to expire and it like ends up always getting extended basically i don't know if that's true anymore but like mickey mouse disney will never let that revert to the public public domain domain. even though you know walt disney genius you know jk rowling walt disney kind of like people of the same kind of stature like obviously a brilliant guy wow jk rowling and walt disney of the same stature i mean yeah, no, I don't disagree. I just think that, that okay. I mean, that's a bold... We can, we can debate that. But, you know, like, you can put J.K. Rowling in a discussion with you could. Walt Disney. No, it's true. You, know? you could. Maybe Walt ends up on top. But, you know, so Walt... But also, Walt didn't come up with most of the things that we associate with Walt Disney. Well, but even if he did, Walt Disney, citizen of the United States, defended by its armies, paid for by taxpayer dollars, like, drew on public services, like, went to fucking schools... Is like Walter product of American society and the genius of like the trademark system is supposed to be you can benefit for like a set period of time from like your cultural or technological production and then it reverts to everyone because well, we've all played a part in like 
building. We're all part of, like, this society. And the same way, like, J.K. Rowling should not be able to hold the rights to Harry Potter, like, in perpetuity and or her estate. Well, especially now, because, like, Disney's been long dead and, like, nobody who thought of Mickey Mouse is, like... Yeah, well, that, I, you could probably fact check me on this. Like, I'm sure some of the original Disney animators are like still around, but you know, Disney's heirs. And actually, one of Disney's. I, do you remember which which Disney is like made this point? Some Disney is. Oh, gone. his um. Yeah, no. There's a there's a there's a Disney heir who is basically like my maybe it's his fortune niece or makes, something. It's his niece. Yeah, I think it is his niece. She's one of these billionaires who is, like, radically opposed to the existence of billionaires. And she's like, my money makes no sense. Yeah. She didn't invent Mickey Mouse, you know? Yeah. Like. <laughs> well, what's interesting that you're describing, actually, is, like, sort of trademark and patent law actually does kind of hew more closely. Or when it works well, it does hew more closely to how goblins think about property. Because the person who comes up with it benefits. But you can't, like, pass on your patent as heritable property forever eventually anybody's allowed to make a fucking toaster yeah so the way we think about intellectual property is much closer to how goblins think about like physical artifacts right but i mean a lot of ip goes into making that sword because it's one of a kind but also ip is like honestly like ip law is one of the reasons that like for all we're bitching about like American society is particularly, has been particularly, like, entrepreneurial and innovative. And dynamic, yeah. And dynamic is because we we don't let people just, like, only have one family be allowed to make toasters for the rest of time. Like, seriously, though. There's all kinds of nuances with trademark and patent law that I'm sure we're not even getting to, but... But, I mean, but the thing is, like, and most people even agree that things like patent trolling like harm intellectual flourishing like people trying to turn patents into a way to primarily get rich rather than is it into a way to primarily have ideas is like bad for innovation the wizards are actually trolls (laughs) patent trolls okay well we've gone broad here and we're about to go even (laughs) broader because uh we gotta talk about this baby and Very specifically, I would like to talk about the fact that the first line that canonically queer character Remus Lupin utters when he enters this house is, it's a boy. Who is it? Bill called. It is I, Remus John Lupin, called a voice over the howling wind. Harry experienced a thrill of fear. What had happened? I am a werewolf married to Nymphadora Tonks. And you, the secret keeper of Shell Cottage, told me the address and bade me come in an emergency. Lupin, muttered Bill, and he ran to the door and wrenched it open. Lupin fell over the threshold. He was white-faced, wrapped in a traveling cloak, his graying hair windswept. He straightened up, looked around the room, making sure of who was there, then cried aloud, It's a boy! We've named him Ted, after Dora's father. Hermione shrieked. What? Tonks? Tonks has had the baby? Yes, yes, she's had the baby, shouted Lupin. All around the table came cries of delight, sighs of relief. Hermione and Fleur both squealed, Congratulations! And Ron said, Blimey, a baby! As if he had never heard of such a thing before. Yes, yes, a boy, said Lupin again who seemed dazed by his own happiness. 
So, and then he burns down Shell Cottage by yeah. like lighting some dynamite. That, Full that gender dynamite. reveal situation. Yeah. <laughs> and gender essentialism has always been a major feature of J.K. Rowling's worldview, and it's been in the texts all along. Okay, so that means Rubis is not canonically queer. He's canonically queer in my head. My head can end. Head canonically He's head queer. canonically queer. Well, I don't know. I still view both of these characters as queer. And she can't take that away from me. No. I think that they have a pretty queer non-binary marriage. And now she was like, it's like she saw that. Meaning Remus and Tonks. Tonks. Yeah. I feel like she saw that and she was like, oh, fuck. I got to make these people straighter. <laughs> I just realized I made an almost not straight couple. Yeah. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. So we've got Lupin. Yeah, the very first thing he says is it's a boy. We all know now uh, exactly what J.K. Rowling thinks about gender uh, and its rigidity. Uh, the other thing in her is view. the fact that that Lupin consistently in this conversation refers to her as Dora. He has re-feminized her name. So Motherhood I'm, has re-feminized her. So I'm going to read... I'm going to read something by a genderqueer writer named A.J. Romano for Vox. Uh, they wrote about the whole J.K. Rowling fucking omni-shambles earlier. Omni-shambles is such a good way to put it. I think that's a Britishism, actually. So, on brand. Uh, anyway, they wrote about the whole J.K. Rowling omni-shambles earlier this year, and especially about this moment in particular. So, I'm uh, just going to read a little bit from... Uh, their piece, which was called, it's on Vox, it's called Harry Potter and the Author Who Failed Us, if you want to go uh, search for it. It took me a very long time to figure out I was genderqueer, and when it finally clicked, one of my biggest revelations was that I'd spent years mapping my own identity onto fictional characters without realizing it. Above all, Tonks in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I vividly remember the visceral excitement I felt the first time I read the fifth Harry Potter book in 2003 and met Nymphadora Tonks, a shapeshifter with spiky pink hair, a punk rock aesthetic, and an insistence on being called by her gender-neutral last name. I was certain that Rowling had written a canonically gender-fluid character. Like millions of other Harry Potter fans who dared to project ourselves into the books, I was ultimately disappointed. By the end of the series, Tonks was a married, fully binary woman, softer and gentler, letting her husband feminize her as Dora, a name she'd previously hated. I've always wondered if Rowling set up Tonks to be somehow tamed in the later books from her earlier non-binary presentation in Order of the Phoenix, and I've always written it off as surely not conscious. As a sickening byproduct of Rowling's transphobic screed, I now realize I was right to have been wary all along. Yeah, obviously that puts it much better than we ever could. But I do, even sort of before you read that to me, I remember as I got to this chapter (laughs) post-Omni-Shambles, Dora really stood out to me because it was something that Tonks, I mean, Tonks sort of treated it almost like a dead name in, in earlier books. She was very... Not only was her preference to be called Tonks, but she was resistant and angry when folks didn't call her Tonks, when they when they used her, her more feminized name. Also, you know, I think a couple of other things happen here. There's a, what is also, you know, a pretty cute description of this infant Teddy's hair changing color kind of right from birth, which is very sweet as a little kind of detail, but also reduces what, we used to understand as I think a much more kind of holistic shape shifting to like, like putting on wigs essentially. Right. I think it's very trivializing of what Tonks can actually do. Right. Yeah. 
because again like I think JK Rowling got really scared of the fact that she had created a the possibility of gender fluidity. It reduces the symbolism of what Tonks is capable of to like a parlor trick. It also, I mean, it reduces it to like costumery, which is something that J.K. Rowling has expressed is what she basically thinks transness is, is like, you know, put on a wig and a dress and do whatever you want, but like, don't tell me you're a woman, is like her kind of very base point. And then it's not just Tonks that Rowling tames here. Remus is also coded early in the series, like, pretty queer. He's got, there's the stigma of being a werewolf. He's kind of this confirmed bachelor. Uh, he doesn't want to be, he, like, resists being put a in, husband. like, being put into this, like, heterosexual relationship with Tonks. Uh, we've talked extensively about how him being a werewolf is, in J.K. Rowling's, like, own words, like, an analog to being HIV positive, which obviously isn't, like, exclusively... Obviously, it, it, that isn't like an exclusively gay experience, but... Um, but J.K. Rowling is certainly someone who sees it as a primarily gay marker. We know that about her. Right. So... Well, also, I mean, and I think his relationship with James and Sirius has always had, like, suggestions of romantic love. Yeah, I think overall, it feels pretty clear that Lupin is and him having to hide in the shrieking shack yeah no I like, mean he's literally he's like closeted, closeted for like a huge amount you of know? these books yeah and his and he's outed he's literally outed and I, he has to leave his job right. so anyway uh Lupin is coded is, is is coded pretty queer and he comes in he has this announcement he says he's having a boy and he's like cured of all his like doubts about this heterosexual marriage he's in and Harry notices that he seems he looks younger than he's ever seen him so yeah no like all the cares like Lupin's like a fundamental like thing we know about Lupin's like appearance is he's kind of like haggard and world weary but now he's like happy and healthy because he's like because he's like allowed himself to fit squarely into the gender norm in which he belongs yeah yeah. no I mean I think it like J.K. Rowling does seem to pretty truly believe that these characters that the cure for what ailed them was like accepting the kind of balm that is safe cisgendered heterosexuality right within Which, like the bounds you, of marriage not and, a bomb yeah i mean i like being married to you now but it's overall pre- it's a sickness <laughs> i mean it works great for us no it's 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 fine um, for us so i just it's been there all along yeah that's what's so interesting getting right. to this chapter and this is not even the most important thing that happens in this chapter but and it's exciting you know it's it's exciting that there's a a, a child and i do think that I don't think that inherently the birth of a baby to a heterosexual couple is like heteronormative. Like I think Harry's observation that like new life in the world as a source of hope is like pretty universal in times of like war. Like it's it's fucking cool when babies get born. It's interesting that she's choosing these particular characters. It could have been Bill and Fleur. Yeah, It could have been like there are other couples in it is, I think it is books. a very important and a very deliberate choice that the these particular characters are saved by cis heterosexuality. Well, and then they die. They don't actually get saved. Well, but they're but they die happy. Yeah, and they they die holding hands. I mean, their death is so barfy and maudlin. <laughs> 
And the thing that I love the most in the world is that the Harry Potter fandom turned around and made Teddy Tonks like the queerest character of them all. <laughs> bless that. Honestly, with all my heart and soul, bless the fan art of Teddy Tonks, who is canonically, who is head canonically, fandom canonically understood to be like definitely not like a strapping young kind of like Ron type. Well, anyway, I just, so when J.K. Rowling gets on Twitter, like boots up Twitter, we can't just say, oh, where did this come from? Like, we know who J.K. Rowling is. And if you've read it, if you've read close enough, like it was always, it was always there. Well, So what I want to do now is take responsibility for the fact that I didn't always see it. Me neither. I think we don't, we can't sit here and say like, oh, it was always there. Like we as cisgendered straight people, I never had to search for myself in these books. I had Hermione was like mapped on to me very easily. Um, I even very, very, very nearly ended up with a Ron. Oh my God. By a hair's breadth did I miss life with a Ron. You know, bless him. But... It was easy for me to see who I was, so I didn't need to struggle through kind of identification with these books. And so I didn't ever find, I didn't ever have this betrayal that that the that Asia or Aja, um, apologies for mispronouncing their name if we're getting it wrong, but that they that they write about. So no, I don't think it's fair for us to be like, oh, we always knew. Like I didn't see that. Oh uh, yeah. No. I didn't think about gender in these books until I understood more about how J.K. Rowling thinks about gender and until I started sort of thinking more about gender myself. Yeah, and yeah, no, you're... you're I didn't have to do that. You're totally right. So, I mean, yeah, I didn't mean to say, like, oh, it's always been, like, we've always seen it there. It has always been there, but it's interesting. And this is where, uh, she does get... You could tell she's thinking about some of this stuff. I know, she just comes down on the wrong side. Like, Harry has a similar experience with Godric Gryffindor, where he's like, man, I've always been really, like, fucking psyched to be a Gryffindor, and now I hear this thing that completely, like, contradicts my conception of, like, the world I live in. He's having, like, a meta moment of, like, God fucking damn it, I just can't have any faves that I believe in. You know, and, like... So, you, you know, she thinks about this stuff and it helps us think that we can think about these things through through the lens of these books. But and it's also really interesting to be reading this in 2020 uh, amid the like manifold reckonings that I mean, we've been having over the last reading, four years with, uh, you know, about everything, Yeah, everything, reading the final Harry Potter book in the final year. God help us all. The final year of the Trump presidency. Of America. <laughs> or of America. Yeah. Or honestly both, either. But like, yeah, this this book in this moment is so I just I'm I'm ingesting all of it so differently. It's actually a really surreal feeling to feel so distant from the person I was when I first read these books, which I didn't have that experience when we first started. Or the people we were, yeah, the people we the were people four we years were ago when we read the reading first these book. books. No, yeah. the, the way that I see the world, like, honestly, I've come on a journey with these books. Like, I actually think that mapping this podcast to our own kind of, like, political and moral and ideological reckonings of the last four years is going to be a really interesting project someday. Yeah. Right now, I cannot re-listen to them <laughs> because all of it is like, I guess... Yeah, I've gained an appreciation of the way that, yeah, people who haven't, who don't see themselves reflected in mass culture have to, like, 
pry open a window, basically. Right, exactly. To get a little uh, bit of fresh to air. Find and... a, to find a space. And I don't think it means we need to, like, divorce ourselves from these books or not engage with, like, mass culture. Because people shouldn't, like... Like, you can't just secede from the world. Yeah, I mean, in, that's why we're finishing. We, in, in we decided that, that we didn't... Yeah. It would have been... I mean, we, but, it would have been a, a, a mark of kind of enormous and... and unconsidered privilege to just be like, okay, well, fuck these books. We, because bo- you can't do yeah. that with everything. No. So, but we do, there is an onus on all of us to, like, read and learn and, like, question and and discuss. Like, the books are there. They're out there. We probably can't expect them to be, like, I mean, we absolutely can't expect them to be roadmaps for radical change like universal studios wouldn't have a theme park deal with like a fundamentally revolutionary text you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like its success is self-selects for some of these problematic accent like aspects that we've we've been talking about down to like i don't know the choice of it's why harry's like harry potter and not hermione like frankly yeah no i mean all of her choices marched right toward a bestseller and bestsellers are not ever are almost never I mean some of her I mean yeah it's like more complicated than that but well I mean it's I'm not saying that she did that on purpose but like she wrote something marketable and like marketable and truly changed the world well okay also that's not fair because these books fucking changed the world they did in myriad ways I mean they 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 transformed publishing yes these books absolutely changed the world but they are not the sort of shining paragons of kind of like progressive utopianism that we I guess maybe have been fed the read another fucking book people must be delighted god they must have just been so fucking psyched when she published that yeah absolutely I mean, unhinged screed they ain't totally wrong no they're totally yeah. right they're not they're not not totally wrong they're fucking right we should all be reading another fucking book yeah. you and i are reading many other fucking books i know everyone listening to this is reading other fucking books or watching other fucking shows or listening or being out in these fucking streets like we're all learning about the world in ways other than harry potter but we're also still reading harry potter because like Honestly, y'all, what what else are we going to do? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you don't, like, we can't just pretend that they don't exist. No. You know? And. And, God, this is so fun. Yeah, it is fun. I'm still having fun. I'm sort of furious all of the time, but I'm still having fun. So, while the books themselves often foreclose on radical possibilities, even though, you know, there's, like, like, the ones that we read into them, like, that matters, too. Like, the way we read it. A book and like interact with it and like the discussions we have around it kind of well now you're just giving our podcast a lot of credit transcend no i just mean in general oh not we you and i but we yeah the people. way the, yeah the, the way the like the universal we like yeah that's uh Those i don't know to me that's what books are for uh wow we came around to a really saccharine point i guess that's saccharine and i mean i don't know maybe i'm just justifying why i have a harry potter podcast to myself like we could have quit and we didn't so <laughs> i don't know uh times we are super almost quit um there but by the grace of you know whoever are we still doing this who's your unsung hero my unsung hero is ragnuck the first uh for having a really badass sword. I'm sorry, Godric Gryffindor took it from him. We never really find out the kind of... Well, there is... You know what? There is no truth. 
There is just who wrote history and who didn't write history. It is a very written by the victors vibe in yeah. Harry Potter, which is another interesting thing she flicks at. Yeah. Mine is Bill. Uh, we didn't get to talk about this quite as much as maybe we could have, but um, Bill has some fucking intercultural competency that he's demonstrating here. He is actually very clear-eyed about cultural differences and he does not make I don't actually think he really makes like a judgment call here he's just like look they're different than us and uh if you break the norms that you've agreed to like that's on you bud so I I actually just really like Bill Weasley in general and uh in this moment I think he he tells Harry what Harry needs to hear Harry doesn't listen Harry almost gets trapped and killed by a dragon and uh you know he has what's coming meanwhile his fucking brother's like hmm Goblins are suspicious of all wizards and think we plan to betray them at every chance possible. You know what we should do? Betray, betray them. Betray Griphook. <laughs> He's not thinking strategically. You no, need Ron's dumb. All magical Alex, creatures on your if side. We, even J.K. Rowling, I think, would agree that like Ron is just not the sharpest tool in the shed. He's not very smart. Oh my gosh. But he's. I guess he makes up for it in being like. Fun and down. <laughs> this week's episode is brought to you by the sword of Ragnuk the First and or Gryffindor. Um, still sharp. <laughs> oh, God. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Incidentally... Alex and I, the other cultural relic that we are currently partaking of is the long-running Fox procedural Bones, in which the alternate universe Harry Potter audiobook narrator Stephen Fry plays a very jolly psychologist. Uh, So hearing Stephen Fry's voice on Bones has been pretty weird. (laughs) But we're listening to the Jim Dale versions. You can... Honestly, like, rate, review, subscribe if you want to. We're almost done. So if you know somebody who is still interested in engaging with Harry Potter, but, you know, would like to to have some questions and they want to start from the beginning. If you know someone who is sick of 2020 and wants to relive the halcyon days of 2016. Oh, God. <laughs> we have an episode, like, the week after the election. It's, oh. it's pretty dark. Uh, and it just got worse. Anyway, if you know somebody who hasn't listened yet, if you started from the beginning, you actually might finish around the same time as we do because we're getting through this last piece a little bit slowly. Much like Harry, Ron, and Hermione. No, they're speeding along. Are you kidding? They were in the woods for like That's true. 100 pages. Yeah, well, we were in that was our for summer. like 100 years. So No woods, just cactuses. You can find us on social media where we post uh, sporadically. And email us. We do read all of your emails. We love them. So please send us a note if you'd like an e-owl, as it were. Quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. And next time, we will be reading the chapter called Gringas. So happy to talk to you all. And we'll talk to you then. Thanks, amigos. You'll be Godfather, he said as he released Harry. Someday stammered Harry. And that day may never come. I'll call upon you to do a service for you. But uh, until that day, 
Yeah, blimey. It would be less dangerous to break into Gringotts than to renege on a promise to a goblin. <laughs> right, said Harry, as Bill opened the door. Yeah, thanks. I'll bear that in mind. Thank <laughs> you.